Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. There are other things that need to be taken into account here, like the whole spectrum of human emotion. You can't just lump everything into these two categories and then just deny everything else. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, a Penn State professor, was charged recently for having sex with his dog near the restrooms at Rothrock State Forest. Wait, so that's illegal? Dude, I'd forgotten about <laughs> I forgot about this. Uh, yes, it is illegal. I mean, I'm sure there are Peter Singer style arguments that it shouldn't be as long as like, you know, eating meat is. You, and you can verify consent, which I think we've consent. talked about in an earlier episode, how you would go about trying to right. assess yeah, that's that. Pr- feels like very, that feels like early, very bad wizards discussions, you know? Yeah. But the, the saddest part to me was like, I don't remember exactly what I read or what he said or whatever, but I got the vibe like of, uh, but wait, let me explain kind of thing from the professor. He said, I do it to blow <laughs> off steam. He said. Oh, yeah. That's not helping. No, no, like, like you should do it because you're under duress, you know, like you should be like the the mafia told me that unless I fucked my dog, but like, he's like, no, come on. Like, you know, who, who among us (laughs) (laughs) hasn't wanted to blow up? That's a terrible excuse. Like that doesn't in any way mitigate like the responsibility or the, it's like, why, like do something else to blow off steam, like go running, like go swimming or something, you know? Jerk off to, uh, like, you could even jerk off to some, like, animal porn, like, I guess. Yeah, some AI dog porn. Yeah. You know? Use, use like, a <laughs> dolly, too. You yeah. Know? He was also, wasn't he also videotaping himself doing it? Because that's, one of the things was, like, okay, he got caught because there was, like, a trail cam yeah. that somebody checked. But then I think it turns out he was also, like, you know, selfieing the thing, like, for, like, for later, you know? It's a collie. It's a poor collie. Is it a collie? collie. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty, but not my... They were were trying to hurt his dick. (laughs) (laughs) Not my jam in particular, but, you know. Try try to have sex with a pit bull. (laughs) I know. Is there any follow-up? Like, is he going to get fired? Like, is this this a lose tenure kind of thing? He's on leave, I think, is the last that uh, we've heard about it. He's 64. I think this is, this means it's time to retire, you know? 
I think this means he's had an ongoing relationship with his dog, and who are we to judge? You know, you know that's that's something that I will write down and perhaps <laughs> use in my own defense, my own case. If you ever get caught, people are going to be like, he's been joking about this shit too much. I, I knew it. <laughs> but why would I joke about it if I was really doing right. it, right? You right. know, why? Right. Like, does that sound like somebody is actually doing it? I don't think so. I mean, do you? I don't. <laughs> um, like jokes aside for a second is it something that you think somebody should lose te- so I-, I assume it's c- clearly illegal I'm, right there's probably yeah. something about mistreating animals but suppose that he you know was seen kicking his dog he probably wouldn't lose tenure for that right but i i, I bet right. you he this is like a tenure but like Tenure loss offense, you know, data fabrication. Right, <laughs> sucks with the dog. That's the irony: is that an act of violence towards his dog would be fine, but an act of love. <laughs> Here's what I think about it: I don't think you can teach as a professor in the age of the internet if you are caught having sex with your dog, and right. just so for might, that so, yeah. reason, like you know, you have to make the guy. You know, because otherwise every student is going to know about this. Like there's no student that's going to take this class. It's, yeah. it's Penn State, a state college. It's not a big town. You know, right, like, right. this will this yeah. will be a story. This will be on rate my for professors. This will be on. You just that have sucks. to like this is a good sign that it's time to, you know, that the next the final chapter of your life is beginning now. Like do some consulting work. Sure. Know, like take. What, what, what field is he in? I forgot. I was about to ask you what. Uh, yeah, I, I I genuinely feel bad for him because you're right. Like there is right, obviously people have been accused of of literal child abuse um, and and rape at Penn State and probably gotten off <laughs> less consequence. What is it about that like state college? <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with that, these people? <laughs> They're fucked up. Uh, you know, not every not everybody's. You're right about the students like. You know, there was a professor at University of Toronto who, you know, connected his laptop to to the projector and there was porn on it. And he just like apologized and moved on. And I think that's all that happened. It is a case, though, where the kind of porn that was up there would have like a huge role in whether or not you could just move on. (laughs) If it's just like threesome uh you know <laughs> right nice. if it's like in the top if it's in like in the top 50 categories yeah. <laughs> yeah it's embarrassing but you can you can uh move forward and have a uh, continued right. career but this right. is this is just you know like and i wonder if like in 1984 could you have that like i don't know interesting uh, that you picked that year tamler um, <laughs> i bet you there's some things that you could just never do <laughs> I bet you there are some things that uh, that haven't actually declined. We've had the same standard. <laughs> oh God, he he begged the Rangers to shoot him at one point. Oh yeah, that is sad. That's that sad. Cut out like thirty percent of the jokes I made. <laughs> <laughs> so this is not. I think I for a second was under the impression that this is our opening segment, but it's not. What is <laughs> no. our opening segment? Well, I tried to segue, but I you weren't paying attention. Yeah. Yes. We are talking about a paper that just came out in Nature, Andrew Mastriani and Dan Gilbert, called The Illusion of Moral Decline. Um, so this is, uh, for those who don't know Nature, it's a, it's a big deal. So this is getting a lot of press. So what they do is they, they document 
something that I think we all probably knew, which is that people are always complaining that the world is in moral decline. Um, and I think this part is kind of impressive. They, they look through tons and tons of survey data. Um, we'll get into what exactly in the survey data they were looking at. But, but for now, 70 years of data across multiple countries and hundreds of question. And they do, they do show that people seem to believe, no matter when you ask them, if you just ask them straight up, like, is the world getting worse? They say yes. So here's where the tricky part comes in. They, they then say, right, because one possibility is just that people are right. Like, it's just actually been in steady decline. Um, but the sexier claim that they make is that this isn't actually explained by the fact that the world is really getting worse. They want to argue that this is just an error of judgment, hence the word illusion in, in the uh, title. And they say that we make this error of judgment for a couple of reasons. One is that we just notice negative information more, like the news covers shitty stuff. Um, so we're constantly bombarded with bad news about the world around us. And that combined with another bias, which is that in our memory, we kind of launder our memories. Like we, we're more likely to remember positive things than negative things. So because of that, we're constantly thinking that things are getting worse. Um, so they do a few studies. They make heavy use of survey data for one set of studies. And then they move on to MTurk and Prolific, where they're asking people uh, to to uh, report specific questions that they've asked. And like, I, I can go through the summary, but why don't we just start from talking there? Tam, what did you think of the paper? <laughs> I think this is honestly like idiotic. Like, I think this is really embarrassing. And look, I might even like think that, that it's true that people are always thinking that morality is on the decline. Um, and maybe for some of the reasons that they say, but I don't even know how to fully conceptualize the question of, but is that an illusion or are they tracking right. something? It's like the, the, there's a section in this paper called, is morality actually declining? Because that's critical for their hypothesis, right? They have to show that people, people are being their chicken little and that that world actually isn't declining. And, and, and that it and, right, and that's why it's an illusion. The idea that you're going to, in a small section of a paper, establish that morality is still just plugging along uh, roughly the same. People are no more or less moral than they were 50 years ago. Not that they measure 50 years ago, as uh, the Scott Alexander guy points out in in his critique of this. A lot of their stuff is focused on, like you know, from the early 2000s to now. And right. I think when people say, as he points out, you know, that morality is declining, they don't mean since like, oh yeah, since the Iraq war, you know, like right. morality is declining. You know, they're comparing it to some sort of past that's probably pre-internet, pre-heavy tech and, you know, deindustrialization. Um, but they're probably not thinking since, like, I remember how moral everybody were, was in the early 2000s. So that's number one. Number two, like, how the fuck are you going to measure whether morality is declining or not? Um, that's like, <laughs> that's like a fundamental philosophical question. You would have to know, like, what are the correct moral views? Uh, what are the, what's the, the, what's the right kind of moral behavior? And like, are people doing more of those 
more of those things or less of those things than they used to. Now, they do pick a couple of things like violent crime and stuff like that. But this is something that uh, people don't necessarily agree about, like fundamental parts of morality. So the idea that you're going to get some sort of objective measure of whether morality has declined or not is and, and you know as much as i don't like the steven pinker like way of trying to establish this you know and the question begging aspects of what he does and whatever quant like this is this is ridiculous this is moronic like the way they try to uh, go about doing this but it's but as you say it is a fundamental part of why this paper is getting a lot of attention so i i um as somebody who like considers themselves the moral psychologist it does it just immediately raises some flags to me that they uh both on the the perception side where you ask like is the world getting worse and more critically on the is the world actually getting worse that they gloss over any kind of definition of morality and and yeah i mean i'll bring up right now something that mastrani says in his blog post uh, where he tries to defend this against this critique. He says, no, look, we just got what people in general would agree about. So let's move on. So like we're talking about being nice to each other. Can you trust people? Were you treated with respect all day yesterday? Obviously, those are things that people consider part of morality and everybody agrees on it. So we're not talking about like gay marriage or whatever. <clears throat> but like it importantly turns on <laughs> like all that other stuff that people disagree about, right? Because it very well could be that a reasonable person has a complete disagreement, as Scott Alexander points out, about whether or not objectively things have gotten worse. And you can't just pick the things everybody agrees on and make a claim that this is enough evidence to show that the world isn't actually declining. Because if I don't even think about like drone warfare as being bad, right? it doesn't even enter my mind, Like, but I, but I do agree that being uh, kind to your neighbor is important. Now we have two, you know, you could measure two things. One, uh, do I think that being kind to your neighbor is is moral? And another, uh, do I think that drone warfare is moral? I would probably tell you, like, the answer to number two is probably more important uh, when it comes to my estimate of whether the world is a better place. But they never they don't do that. They don't they don't make the effort of even doing something like saying we got a thousand people from 20 different countries and we just ask them, what do you think is what makes the world a moral place versus an immoral place? Right. Like they don't bother to do that. They don't so, gesture at any of that. They don't even think yeah. that's necessary. And that that hand wavy part combined with the confidence with which they're making their their uh, claims is something that that does really get to me. Like this so, is this. Yeah. This comes from the actual paper, not the blog, which I do want to get to. Uh, yeah. At the end of that section, they say, the subjective measures we analyzed are not definitive, of course, but they strongly suggest that the widespread perception of moral decline is an illusion. Moreover, studies that use the rare objective me measures of changes in everyday moral behavior, just that that's rare is exactly the problem, right? right? right. Su suggests the same thing. For example, Juan et al. showed that rates of cooperation in the prisoner's dilemma game have increased Ugh. significantly between 1956 and 2017. Like, that's, that's like... <laughs> That, that is not an objective measure of fucking morality. 
Like that's fucking yeah. insane that you would that you would you put that in as like your concluding paragraph of the section. It's just ten percent greater increase, a ten percent <laughs> increase in prisoners' dilemma in in the lab. Tema. I mean, there's no way you're going to tell me that that might be explained by people learning about game theory at a higher <laughs> rate and therefore acting uh, slightly better. No, it's um, just that people have gotten a lot more cooperative, like over yeah. the over the years. You know, like this is a sociological question and an ethical question and a philosophical question. This is not a question for these kinds of methods. And the idea that um, you're going to get there and, and just throw some numbers around and run some studies and do the things just shows like when I get really frustrated about the state of social psychology and a lot of the quantitative social sciences, this is the kind of stuff that I'm talking about and experimental philosophy for that matter. And, and to a bad end too, because if it was just a bullshit result, who cares? But like there's a kind of agenda here also that this is trying to um support right. and that's what makes this like slightly i guess insidious so i like let me just say like a couple of things that that i just want to get out there one is their review their use of all of those surveys across 70 years across all of those countries is really impressive like i can't think of another way to ask and answer the question, do people think the world is getting worse? I think they did a good job with that. Like that's, I don't know of anybody who's done anything like that for that question. And it's true that that question has been asked a bunch in these like surveys of, of people's thoughts. So that part, all that said, yeah, this, this, here's what bugs me. Um, one of the things, the amount of effort that they clearly put into like analyses and collecting these data and making the case with their numbers seems so disproportionate to the amount of conceptual analysis that this requires. Yeah. Like if they had just spent some more time, you know, as Scott Alexander says, if you had just made this a paper about honesty and kindness, and then you had asked people, how honest and kind do you think, is the world getting worse at that? And then asked them and then just looked at answers about how how honest and kind are people now and shown that discrepancy? I mean, it wouldn't, but how would you nature. even establish that people have gotten more honest or less honest or more kind and less kind? Like, even, like, like yeah. how do you, uh, yeah. yeah, here's though. I mean, you like, it, it's hard. I don't think you can, but here's at least an honest attempt where, which is one of the methods they use. You could ask people, is the world, are people getting less honest? And then look at what they say. People say like, yes, the world is totally getting less honest. And then compare that every year to just the question, how honest are people? And see whether that answer changes. That's like one strategy that you that they do use for the for the question of morality. But it would be more slightly more convincing if they were just looking at a specific thing like that. Another but, way they do it is to say like, were people kind to you today or something yeah, like which that, is just, yeah. which is again, like people, it's totally consistent to believe that, yeah, I live in this nice kind of yeah. neighborhood where people are nice to me, uh, but I think overall kindness has gone down. If, if you do the kind of conceptual analysis and philosophical and methodological, like critical thinking that you would need, you would just say, oh, wait, we can't establish in a fucking nature paper whether morality has declined or not. And yeah. and then you would just junk it. You would just not do that part. And you would focus all on the question of why do people continually think that morality right. is declined? You right. know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and like I was saying to you offline, I think it would be 
they, they it's very weird that they didn't just go to a bunch of statistics like Pinker style where they're like, okay, infant mortality is down, ch- charitable donations are up, like, you know, you know, whatever, uh, poverty whatever it is that pinker argues at least pinker is arguing with with whatever data he can get his hands on and and just showing right so like show a graph about violent crime rates across the world um and map that on to what people actually think is going on um like there is a very interesting finding and this is i'll say i've been working on a paper with my grad student on a very similar idea there is uh there are findings out there that show that if you ask people has violent crime gone up or down like every year people say it's gone up and for at least a good chunk of that time, it's actually going down. Right. So people are miscalibrated in at least some specific ways. And I think you can show that, but yeah, if you do it like that, like with something that actually can be objectively measured. Now that doesn't mean you don't know what the causes of violent crime increasing or decreasing is. It's not necessarily that people have gotten more or less moral, but that is something that's objective. You can measure it and then you can fight about the causes of it and how to interpret the, those results. But this is, this this is a non-starter because uh, like we don't agree about what morality is. If you think yeah. like loneliness, mental health and uh, climate change are like uh, key <laughs> right. parts of like a good life, then morality definitely has declined, you right. know, right. Uh, yeah. but they don't ask about that. Like, because this is the thing and this is like, I don't know, maybe to uh, wrap up unless you have more to talk about. Well, I want I want you study. to get a chance to talk about the blog post. Yeah, I, I think here's where you see the agenda here. So this is this guy, Adam Mastrioni's uh, blog, uh, a more folksy write-up, you know, yeah. pop sci write-up of these results. So it's the section is, please allow me to watch Paddington 2 in peace. This paper was born out of spite. For my whole life, I've listened to people, my whole life, I've like, since he was seven years old, he's listened to people bemoan the demise of human goodness. Used to be you could trust a man's word. Back in the day, you didn't have to lock your doors at night. People don't care for one another anymore, etc. This drives me nuts. I get worked up about this because these claims actually matter. If you really think that people are less kind than they used to be, you are alleging a disaster. Moral decline would be very very, very bad. Morality is the glue that holds our society together. If that glue disappears, our society is falling apart. So if that's happening, we should do something about it right away. But if it isn't, instead of shouting fire in a crowded theater, you should zip your lips so we can all watch Paddington 2 in peace. So the idea here is leave me alone. I don't want to feel like like there are moral problems in the world. I just want to watch my shit and go about like my business as a like ver- like very privileged member of society. I don't want to hear that there's actually like stuff that's that's wrong with the world if there really isn't. And that's like a really I don't know, like it represents something larger, like an attitude among the elites here that kind of matches what people worry about them you know like this is like this is what people fear about the elites is that they're just a bunch of fucking fat cats that are just happy with how uh things are going because it's going great for them he loves paddington too and so uh and he's like you know harvard grad uh columbia postdoc or whatever and like just let them let them enjoy that in peace because everything's fine you know um now in the paper 
there's something like equally ridiculous on this front, I think. Uh, and this is in the discussion section. Uh, with that said, the illusion of moral decline seems to be a robust phenomenon that may have troubling consequences. For example, in 2015, 76% of U.S. Americans agreed that addressing the moral breakdown of the country should be a high priority for their government. The United States faces many well-documented problems, from climate change and terrorism to racial injustice and economic inequality, and yet most U.S. Americans believe their government should devote scarce resources to reversing an imaginary trend. Like, what are they talking about? What are him and Gilbert talking about? Like, is the government, like, spending $2 trillion on, like, a giant morality ray that can zap people to make them more moral and reverse the decline? Like, what resources are they, are, is the, are, are, are the issue here? You ask people, like, should the government, like, have it be a priority that people are more moral? They don't mean like $75 billion to like a moral character training, like national required course or something like that. But this is the kind of stuff that's just tossed off. In the, the last couple of sentences say, if low morality is a cause for concern, then declining morality may be a veritable call to arms and leaders who promise to halt that illusory slide to, quote unquote, make America great again, as it were, may have outsized appeal. Our studies indicate that the perception of moral decline is pervasive, perdurable, unfounded, and easily produced. Achieving a better understanding of this phenomenon would seem a timely task. So, look, you're right. Like, people aren't spending tons of money for uh, to, to combat moral decline. It could be that what they're arguing is that people are spending a lot of energy and time in the media trying to combat what they think is like, you know, like, look at all the anti-pride energy that goes into this from the conservatives. Like, you look at all of the efforts that they're trying to do to, like, remove um, whatever books about race uh, in, in the libraries. This is all because they they are claiming that our children are being ruined by by bad stuff, which, fine. Like, I, I agree that that's actually a waste of time because I don't right, believe but- that those things are bad. But clearly— if that's what they believe, then you should have put those measures into your fucking study. Because right, it's not an <laughs> illusion for them. Like gay people can get married now. Yeah, there are like that. That's like for them. Like they're responding to something completely real, not illusory. Right? Yeah. There, there aren't anti-target campaigns to not be polite <laughs> to each other. Right? Like, <laughs> you'd be like, this no, it's an illusion because like people are more cooperative on prisoners' dilemmas, and they they'd be like, yeah, but it used to be that like marriage was ma- between a man and a woman and like women were you know spending yeah. more time like those aren't but those aren't the measures of morality if they were then morality would have declined a lot yeah i i feel like they just removed whatever uh, credibility they might have had for their limited findings by by revealing their hand like yeah. that this this was what they were trying to show all along which look i the the view that this is just the like elites making a, you know, Harvard grads or Harvard professors making a claim about like, I have nothing, it, no sense that that's like a, what's driving this or that that's what it's promoting. Like, I don't, I just think that it's done. It's, it's dividing I mean, the country he, even more. He right? wants to watch Paddington too in peace. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, I think it's divisive. Like, I, I think w- our science should at least try to, to be objective. And as, as, 
uh, Scott Alexander points out, right, we have the moral foundation stuff that has been saying this for years, that morality is broader than what liberals think it is. Right. And so not to not even, that to me is a slap in the face, right? Like that's a, there's been so much ink spilled about this. Yeah, the Alan Fisk's like moral framework right. stuff, like yeah. all of that stuff is just, is dismissed in the blog post by first a note to the pedants. This is the section no. heading. No First, a note to the pedants. We both, you independently texted me about this. Yeah. Uh, you might be thinking, morality, that's a loaded term, exclamation point. People can use that word to mean a lot of things. As Hegel says, let me stop you right there. This is so smug. This is smugness personified. He goes, let me stop you right there. You're right, but fortunately, none of the results I'm about to show you depend on using that particular word. You can, of course, use words to mean anything you want, blah, 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 blah. Uh, when pollsters ask people for examples of moral decline, the most frequent answers are people don't treat each other with respect. Things that we can all agree are bad. Okay, goodbye, pedants, on, onward to the science. It, like, doesn't address any of the concerns here, and it just is... You know, like, uh, you know, as I read this, OK, goodbye, pedants. I'm like, well, that's dismissive because I could have been on your side about about a lot of this stuff. And now my number one concern about your paper is being dismissed by calling me a pedant and yeah. and then telling me onward to the science as if like my science is is not like up to snuff. Like, let let right. me tell you what the actual science is. It is. Yeah, it's the it's the worst kind of um empirical arrogance where where you're like i don't care about your silly <laughs> philosophy like i'm here to show you free will doesn't exist it's exactly that um the uh there's a funny footnote uh, there's a footnote in the scott alexander thing and it's like he just throws it in there so it's, it's an old tweet from 2011 by <laughs> Stephen cass why idly theorize when you can just just check all caps and find out the actual answer all caps to a superficially similar sounding question scientifically all caps that's what it is that is the attitude like we yeah. could speculate as to why people uh think that morality is declining we could speculate as to whether morality is actually declining but let's actually look to the science to tell us and stop just speculating from our armchair. 10, but the 10%. superficially similar sounding question is exactly right. And it's 10%, 10% prisoner's dilemma, uh, cooperation increase. <laughs> That's All right, who are you to lie with? Uh, like, who are you? Sorry, who are you to argue against that? <laughs> like Pink, Pinker could have just like ended his book with that, by the way, bitches. Yeah. 10% just, greater cooperation right. than prisoner's dilemma. I, I will say, like, if I didn't think it was possible to get me to appreciate that <laughs> aspect of Pinker's work, but like this yeah. paper uh, does it. Um, yeah, it has at least a methodology that, <laughs> right. like, it's not. It doesn't just hand wave like the entire time. Yeah, yeah. I do think that there. I don't know if this is an illusion, but there has been a decline in social psych papers. You, it's like your ass used to be beautiful. You know, even if it was even, you know, like whatever with like Zimbardo setting that experiment up, having like people brutalize each other. Like, that's fun. Whatever the methodological problems with that was the Milgram stuff, like dime in a phone booth, making I, people I, nicer, like, you know, like it's ridiculous, but it's at least fun. It's like it's like I said, seven people be hacked 
but but it's fun. I just want like why why can't I have both? Why can't I have a happy balance here of yeah. of of both? <laughs> Go back to not caring about the problems with those things, and then just do fun studies. You know, <laughs> it's, it's hard when I believe that there's truth to be discovered. Tamler, I don't, you don't have that problem. <laughs> All right, but, All but right, I'm with we'll you. be right. Make social, make social psychology great again. Speaking of, we didn't even mention the connection. Yeah. First of all, we didn't right. mention what we're going to be talking about, nor um, the connection, which is No Country for Old Men is essentially a movie about this phenomenon. Exactly. The world has morally gotten away from us. You know, eight years ago, we would have been on top of this. <laughs> we would have made the connection early. All right, we'll be back to talk about No Country for Old Men. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, every so often you come to some moment in life, that moment of truth, you have to make this choice, and it's a big one. It could be about your career, a relationship, family, whatever it is. Your choice is going to have a huge effect on your life and maybe the type of person you're going to become, and it's hard. Sometimes you can feel paralyzed by that choice in the moment. There's not going to be some study that tells you what to do. The situation is too complex, too particular to you for that. Therapy can help you stay connected to what you really want while you navigate life and help you not get bogged down in cycles of self-doubt and indecision so you can move forward with confidence and excitement. Trusting yourself to make decisions is like anything. The more you practice it, the easier it gets. Therapy can be hugely beneficial for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, how to get the self-confidence you need to make those big decisions come what may. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. So, if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash VBW to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thanks as always to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. First time I meet you, fragrance like a flower, subtle and sweet too, seductive and whatever, it might as well be see-through, like my genie in a bottle, this could get me rich, look like a magazine model, before you know it, he have her on the stroll, fresh and ripe, complexion like Acapulco gold, if I had to guess just right, not a day old, like a cradle robber, cop the off shop, a trailer load, know the right number, you could get her, and hit it while you in the soul, to the highest bidder, like fruits and berries, bring daddy loot in a hurry, just be cute, don't worry, time to make Hallucinate and admit it, then she started losing weight, letting everybody hit it. Unlike Ali, sometimes she get bitter. Always kept me happy, never had a problem with her. Always kept me happy, never had a problem with her.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the episode where we like to take a moment and thank all the people who get in touch with us, who interact with us, who email us, tweet at us, uh, join in the various communities. If you would like to do that, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet to us at Peas, at Tamler, at Very Bad Wizards. We don't have a fucking threads thing. I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm waiting that out to see if it's real. I don't totally buy it, but we'll see. Um, you can follow us on Instagram. You can like us on Facebook. And you can join the Reddit community and participate in the lively conversation, which is mostly just people shitting on me for all sorts of fucking bullshit. Just the worst. I got to get off there. Not good for me. But, you know, it's, it's I don't know. You cross the line. Congratulations. Uh, whatever. Anyway, you can also subscribe to us on Spotify. That always helps the podcast grow. And if you really want to be nice, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We love those. Uh, Bizarro was just texting me one of our most recent reviews, which was just woke enough. And he said that could be a tagline for our podcast. I agree. So thanks. And if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, there's a bunch of different ways you can do that. You can give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal. You can buy some swag. All of this is at the Very Bad Wizards support page. You can become one of our beloved Patreon supporters, and there's a bunch of different tiers. At just $1 an episode, so $2 a month, you will get all ad-free episodes plus all the volumes of David's Beats Without Rhyme series. And he just put out last week the seventh volume. So there's seven whole volumes of Pizarro's Beats. Always phenomenal. Uh, at $2 and up per episode, you get all of our bonus content. Tons of bonus episodes and both archived. And we have a ton of stuff coming up right now. We just dropped an Inland Empire episode, which I thought was actually pretty good. Um you get early access to David and Paul Bloom's podcast series, Psych, which just wrapped up their first season, I'm told. First season. I Man, I just, I'm on my way out. Well, it was a good run. What are you going to do? Uh, oh, but you can also get the first episode of my new miniseries with Robert Wright called Overton Windows, where we examine the acceptable range of discourse for various topics, policy issues, and how that acceptable range changes over time. We're going to release our first episode of Overton Windows next week, and the topic is Israel-Palestine. Oh, man. At $5 and up, you get access to our miniseries on the Brothers Karamazov, a whole video series of intro to psych lectures by David, a couple lectures on Plato's Symposium by me, and you get to vote on our Patreon listener-selected episode. And we just put out a call for topic suggestions a couple of days ago. So we're going to get a ton of suggestions. We'll narrow it down to a list of finalists, and then uh, the $5 and up Supporters will get to vote on what topic we do, and those are always really fun episodes. Finally, at the highest tier that we have, $10 and up, you get all of that, plus you can ask a question for our monthly Ask Us Anythings, which are always very fun, and we will answer all those questions in a video episode, an audio episode, and we release the audio version for our bonus episode tier listeners, too. Thank you so much for all your support and interactions, except probably those Reddit motherfuckers, or fuck it, them too. Who cares? Let's get to No Country for Old Men. All right, let's get to our main segment for today, No Country for Old Men, the 2007 movie from the Coen brothers. This was the movie that kind of brought them back. They do Big Lebowski, and then after that, they do Intolerable Cruelty, which is 
a movie that's not good. It's one of the very <laughs> few uh, Coen Brothers movies that just I don't think is good at all. And then the next one I didn't even see because everyone seemed to agree that it wasn't good. Their remake of The Lady Killers. Did you ever see that? No, I haven't seen either of those two. Yeah. I completely forgot they even existed, to be honest. <laughs> you know, when you have a track record like them, they're just consistent excellence. Uh, you know, they needed something, I think, to bring them back to like, oh, we can just do one of these mid-budget movies um, whenever we want. And this was the movie uh, adapted huh. from the Cormac McCarthy novel, which I've read and reread recently. You didn't, right? You've nope. never read it? Nope. Yeah. Nope. 2005 novel. It was their first adaptation. It's very faithful to the book, both faithful in terms of the plot structure and even faithful in terms of some of the odd details in the movie, and also just faithful to the mood of the novel and the mood of Cormac McCarthy in general. Have you read Cormac McCarthy at all? No, it's funny, though. I've been meaning to, and I actually bought The Road uh, like a month ago or something with the plan yeah. of reading it on a trip, and I didn't get around to it, and then and then he just died. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe like, he would still be alive today if you had... <laughs> <laughs> read the road you know uh, yeah. it's great by the way i read the road on a on a trip i yeah. i can remember reading that uh i was d going to the keys to dive with my wife she had never dived before and i was reading the road during that trip and it's really good uh i've read that i've read no country i've read and i love this is my favorite of what i've read all the pretty horses um, and then I read uh, the other two in the Border Trilogy, The Crossing. To my shame, I've never read Blood Meridian, but I like I, I feel like this summer now I'm going to read yeah. it because I've, I've read like yeah. the first 70 pages and then not because it's not good, but because it's definitely a book that requires like your full attention. Right. Like I just stopped and then. Yeah. Yeah. And nowadays I rarely give my full attention to anything. That's why I want to <clears throat> start reading again, because yeah. it really does get you get out of shape. Yeah. You get out of like full attention shape. It's like push-ups. Like, uh, you know, like <laughs> totally. you start, you're doing it and then you're like, but then if I go back to it now, I'll be still, you know, like yeah. I, I was doing like three sets of 25 and now I'll be doing <laughs> like struggling to get to 15. You know? Yeah. That's a that's the way to do it. How you did it, just a, de a dedication to reading. Anyway, yeah. the, this movie won the Academy Award for Best Picture. The only time they've done that. Anton Chigurh won Best Supporting Actor. Roger Deakins did not win for Best Cinematography, although this is the same year as There Will Be Blood, so yeah. I hope he won, the person who did that. Yeah, I don't know. Who, did, did There Will Be Blood win other things? Did it Daniel Day-Lewis win for that? I, th I think so. Yeah. Again, he I don't know. It's very he weird that they came out the same year. Like, they were very... shooting at the same time. <laughs> oh, I know they were like there was smoke in the background. I think uh, the Coens yeah. were like, "What the fuck is going on?" And yeah, because was... they were doing the fire um, yeah. in "There Will Be Blood," which we should yeah. do someday. Uh, yeah. Like that is legendary, and in one of my favorite places in the whole world, that West Texas desert area mm -hmm. around Marfa. I mean, I don't love Marfa, but the that landscape, and then down below that is Big Bend State Park, and then a little to the east is Big Bend National Park, and I fucking, I love that area. Yeah. Amazing time to be there, I would imagine. 
<laughs> Can you imagine running into those guys in some little town? Like, or all, yeah, all of them. I mean, <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis is uh, <laughs> having like a pint. With still, the, like, still in character. <laughs> yeah, uh, because he's, because his method. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure, like he probably was. Uh, I'll drink your pint. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay. <laughs> this was a big hit. I think it made a good amount of money. Um, not a ton, but a good amount for them. And it's so good. You've been wanting to do this movie forever. Like, I know this is one of your all-time favorites. Yeah, I was telling you off air. Like, every time I watch it, it keeps climbing up my list. Uh, and and for so many reasons. It's it's just a, a rare movie where it's hard to find anything really done wrong. Like, done poorly. Yeah. The cinematography, the acting. Fuck, man. The acting, like there is such good acting here, and it's it's really not it's not in your face. It's subtle. No, it's not um, flashy at all. No, even Shigur, like even, even Shigur, yeah, yeah. Who was a little the first time I watched it, I will admit, like the Shigur character was too weird for me. Like I, it, it felt so out of place that weirdness yeah. that I could like that it kind of focalized my attention in a way that it shouldn't have uh, for the film. And so, like it's the second time, the third time, I was like, oh man, this it's, is. It, it's yeah. not like a Joker from Batman kind of character where it's so charismatic. Its evilness is really fun. It's not right. exactly like that, but it's also not fully not like that. <laughs> right. You know, right. Like the flipping of the coins and the the odd haircut and the pale face. Like there's a yeah. lot that's. Yeah. And I didn't know Javier Bardem <clears throat> before this. Like <clears throat> I so like this is a totally new person. Um, as far as I'm concerned, like watching it the first time and, um, you know, just his accent and his, it's all, it's really well done. In the, in the novel, if I'm recalling correctly from what I read, it's completely unspecified where he's from. Completely. Yeah. yeah. He just said, I get, I read that he just picked the name cause it sounded cool. Like it had like a vibe to it. Like there's no yeah, like, etymology. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, that which makes sense. It really, ca- I feel like the performance captures. Now, I did read the book, I think, for the first time after I saw the movie. So, mm-hmm, yeah. you know, probably that. But I feel like at least reading the book, it captured him. And a lot, of, most of the dialogue is straight out of the book. Right. The, Ethan Cohen described writing the screenplay as I would hold open the book and mm-hmm. read aloud, and Joel, Joel would start typing, you know. That was... yeah, that's it's amazing that you know it's that's exactly what I do for my publications. <laughs> um, what you were alluding to the capturing the the emotional tone of the book I haven't read the book, but whatever that emotional tone is, um, I, which I don't know how to describe. It's it's some sort of fatalism, and some sort of like uh, dread, uh, like dread mm-hmm. of of evil especially Tom Lee Jones's character and his response to what's going on is just like a, a great, a great sort of like living in the face of great evil. Like what, what does that do to somebody? Um, and, and, then, and that yeah. you can't fully like understand, understand. like exactly this, his this grappling. You can see thing. him trying. Yeah. yeah. He's trying. He's really trying to understand what's happening. And part of that is he's, he's trying to reach back to the old ones for wisdom and it's not getting him where he needs. And he is, is pretty much going to give up 
he's just like giving up. He's like, I can't understand this anymore. Like this world is something I can't understand anymore. Um, so I quit. And, yeah. And then I guess we'll talk about this more, but I think he's, you know, I, I think part of what's going on is everybody as they age at some point thinks that the world is really terrible. And like, he even tells stories about how terrible the world was back then. And it's like, he's missing that. Like, it's not that it was, it's not that this is, uh, that evil is grander now than it used to be. It's just like, you're getting old. <laughs> so that's what in the scene with Alice at the end, yeah. that that's kind of the upshot of that conversation where he says, do you know how your own Mac died or somebody? Yeah. And, and, and it was just the same kind of almost like Llewellyn soulless right? murder, yeah. you know, like, but yeah, no, I think if the book has a stance, it's like, this is always been with us. If anything, it might be tied to America because there's, mm. like Ellis says, this country does yeah. bad things to people. And so maybe it might be tied to America, but not tied to certainly this specific time. At the On the other hand, there is something about Chigurh and his, the just the bleak nihilism of, yeah. of his character and the kind of soullessness of what yeah. he does and the soullessness even of his weapons, right? Yeah. That yeah. does also give the impression, oh, wait, this is something, if not new, then different from yeah. the ordinary thing. This is different than like the Woody Harrelson being a hitman who just kills people for money or the Mexicans and the Americans doing a drug deal, a violent drug deal. This is some new thing. So there's yeah. also that element of it that has those two things be in tension. Like maybe it's not just that you're old and now you're like scared of the world. Maybe it's, there is something new. And I feel like I... <laughs> Like, that's where I am with this. I don't know. You know, <laughs> yeah. sometimes it does seem like uh, just today I was texting you. They uncovered this like ring of people putting out monkey torture videos, commissioning and then distributing these videos of people torturing monkeys. And it's like, oh, is this, yeah. like that, I, I, who, how do you do this? What like? what kind of a person like what like i don't like you can't get wrap your mind around how there could be a market for this stuff and i know people did fucked up things like way more fucked up than i can imagine in the crusades or whatever and the spanish inquisition and all of that but it just there is something where it's like this isn't just like sick people in power like perverted roman em emperors this is like I don't know. Like there's a it's it's like you feel that there's a mood in the air of something that is yeah, yeah. just makes you like your skin crawl. Yeah. No, absolutely. It reminds me this could be totally wrong and I could be misremembering, but if I recall in Genesis when uh it's talking about um humans before the flood when God looks around and says like this shit is bad. Um yeah. that the word isn't quite evil the way that we use it, but it has this connotation of like an evil imagination yeah. where they're like being creative with their bad, you know, right. like they're, it's, it's an evil creativity. And that's how, the feeling that you get, which is like, whoa. Yeah. How do you even think of this? Like, <laughs> exactly. never mind, like want to do it. So the other, the other thing that I think makes me like this movie so much, I recently watched a, a video essay about, uh, 
modernism, postmodernism, and metamodernism. And it gave No Country for Old Men as an, as an example of a good sort of postmodern nihilistic film. And then when it was introducing metamodernism, something that I think we didn't talk about in our regular uh, uh, episode, but we mentioned in our Ask Us Anything, we had a conversation about mm-hmm. what metamodernism is, and yeah. it's it's it adds back sincerity <laughs> where there was only like sarcasm and irony before. Um, it's an attempt at that, and I like I like the old ways. I like the the nihilism of this movie. Like I like feeling that feeling that it gives me, um, and I like that it is so. It's it's a gift. Like, given our episode on interpreting art, this to me is like the Coen brothers handing me like a really yummy meal. They're just giving us a bunch of open-ended things to discuss and interpret and talk about. And it's full of symbolism. It's full of details. And it seems as if maybe they have an answer in mind, but they certainly aren't going to tell us what that answer is. Um, and maybe Cormac McCarthy has an answer. I don't know if the book is a bit more, if a, if the book gives as much open endedness of a feel as the movie. Um, but yeah. that's I, what I, I like. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good question. Whether it does or not, I do think it doesn't support certain interpretations that maybe we'll talk about, like yeah. the Fight Club interpretation <laughs> yeah, that Shakur yeah. is just uh, Moss's alter ego. Um, but because the book is told even more clearly from the sheriff's perspective than the idea of Shigur more as something that he's conjuring up versus yeah. somebody that we should take fully literally and real is it might even be more alive in the book than the movie. Yeah. That's super interesting because, yeah, with with film, like I can imagine the challenge, you know, you could have voiceover for the whole thing where you know that it's all from the sheriff's perspective but they weren't going to do that in this movie so you have to have uh sorry you just you just have to have scenes where shigur is alone with other people so like what else are you gonna do right you can't you can't have like the sheriff looking over (laughs) no you can't have this all taking place like with him with his head kind of superimposed (laughs) over all brady bunch looking down on on them (laughs) alice (laughs) no 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 but i don't think the book like i it leaves it open i don't think the book is suggesting that at all because i say it's from his perspective it's because he has these interludes of italicized like reflections that are Mm -hmm. distributed throughout the whole book and that we 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 get the first one in the monologue at the uh, beginning of the movie, but I think that's it. Um, Whereas in the book, it's throughout the whole movie. uh, The book, it ends the book. But then in between those things is the action, which is told in third person and not, it's not necessarily that the sheriff is uh, imagining it. Uh, At least that's how I read it. It's really good. I think you would like the book. Like, like a lot of this period, McCarthy also, you can read it in a few days, like at most. Um, Anyway, the, the movie. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So what, so what do you like where we talked a little bit before, but where does this rank up there? Like how? So I, I wouldn't call this one of my all time favorite movies. I think it's fucking awesome though. Um, Certainly up there with my favorite Coen brothers movie. I like I'm not sure I would put it above Fargo and the Big Lebowski, but I also could change my mind about that at the end of this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and I the thing I love about it, number one, it just their their craft 
in this is like a plus 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 yeah, plus. It, 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 yeah, they're they're at their power. Their powers are at their you know prime. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is peak Coen Brothers. Just knowing how to film an action scene or a like a suspenseful scene, and then also the thing that I love about it is that it's a lot of it is shot in Marfa, or in and around Marfa, Texas. That West Texas area is one of my favorite places in the whole world. And I started going there only during COVID. My daughter and I started going there every year to like camp uh, to Big Bend National Park and State Park. And like, there is something about that uh, landscape that does something to me that I don't, I don't even know what it is, but I, I feel, I always knew that I would like it just from seeing like Westerns where that mm-hmm. area was depicted. And then, got there and it was exactly like it was more than what I thought and I think the Coen brothers like just the opening of this movie it's it's almost photographic at yeah. with the mon- with with Tommy Lee Jones's monologue the sheriff uh, it's just so beautiful and like captures what I love about that area and the feel of it so perfectly there's a kind of bleakness but there's also a absolute beauty and it's just the space the freedom of the space there is something that I think it it gets at both the terrifying aspect of that but also just the unfathomably beautiful part of that too when Ella says this country's hard on people or whatever yeah um i i wasn't sure it was seemed ambiguous to me whether he was referring to the country the, the united states or this country as in like this land yeah. you know um this I area think it, this yeah this landscape yeah. this desert landscape yeah i i uh, think so that that he's referring to the country in the book they make more of a deal out of just america's sins mm. You know, that this could be kind of part of America's sins. This is what it culminates in a person like Sugar. It doesn't hit that. It's not on the nose. Uh, by the way, one of the things that I think is makes this movie powerful for me is the lack of a score. And when you were mm. talking about the landscape, it was reminding me of, of um, Tarkovsky not like shooting the landscapes and not having any any music. Like there is something very emotional about the silence with those shots. And I think it's ballsy to shoot without music. Yeah. You can't manipulate emotions in the in that easy way that when you have the music. No. It has a little underlying thing that could just be uh diegetic sound. Yeah. It could just be, you know, it's like it's in that way, like Stalker, like you said, it has certain things that you think are part of the world, but then if you really listen, it's actually something going on. There's like a hum. There's a hum at points. Yeah, you know? exactly. There's yeah. like a little hum. Uh there was a guy like Carter Burwell. He's a very like he's worked with them a lot. Um I, I think it's like really effective in this yeah. movie. It just captures the just these people are alone yeah. and, and how they feel and what they do is is up to them. It has that kind of effect. I think it's like there's nothing telling them what to do. Yeah. Here. And, you know, the desert landscape is <sighs> if you're familiar with the desert of all at all, you know, I grew up not far from the desert, like far enough uh, east in California that we were probably in the desert, but it was irrigated. But all you had to do was drive like 30 minutes and you're just in desert. And it is danger. Like if you're out there and you don't know what you're doing, 
like it is very dangerous. Like it is a, it's a bad place to be. So even when he's out there in the beginning scene, when Llewellyn is hunting, I'm like, you know, I hope he knows where he's going. Like, I hope he is that he had no water with him. Freaked yeah. me out. Like I said, that freaks me out. <laughs> not like, having gotta, water stresses me out. You got to respect have. the desert. You know, you got to. Yeah. Yeah. We should, um, I guess, get into it. So, yeah, there's this opening monologue. You know, here's this sheriff. He's from a, a small town of Sanderson, Texas, which has a population of under a thousand people. He feels like there's this new kind of bad guy, like an evil in the world. And he doesn't understand it. And he doesn't want to meet. He says, I don't want to go meet something I don't understand. And as this is happening, you just get the Chigurh opening sequence. Him getting arrested. We don't know for what. And yeah, that's right. him getting out. Uh, and yeah. we don't see, they do a good job of like a, you know, monster movie style. They don't, you don't see him. You see like the weird haircut. You see him from behind. He's getting arrested. And then when you finally see him in the sheriff's office, sitting in the back, it really is like a third man scene where he pops out of the shadows and you see yeah. him full on for the first time right before he attacks and kills the sheriff. <laughs> and then Whatever he's doing in that scene as he's looking up at the ceiling as he's choking the guy is yeah. crazy. It's yeah. just like, me, hello, I'm an insane fucking psychopath. The dark comedy of this movie is just also put front and center. Like the deputy, nice enough guy, but he's describing it like probably to the sheriff of, of that town. And, you know, he had a hose. He's describing the oxygen tank. They're running down his sleeve. And he's like, don't worry, I got it under control. And meanwhile, you're just watching Shigur come uh, from behind him with the handcuffs right, to strangle Slowly him. had slipped his hands underneath his yeah. legs. Yeah. <laughs> It's just so freaking, it's funny. Like, it's actually kind of funny in this bleak way. Um, And I would say, like, the movie does that at times, but very sparingly. A lot of times, the violence doesn't have that kind of ironic Coen Brothers, like, kick to it. Um, (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's kind of incredible to me, is an offhand comment, that these are the same people who made movies like, oh, brother, where are, where are thou? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, or Raising Arizona, although there are a couple of scenes that are very much like Raising Arizona in this. Uh, so then we see Chigurh on, on the long desert road pulling over a driver in the uh. cop car that he stole. And I remember the first time I saw this being so confused about what had just happened. I was like, what is that thing? Like, yeah. w- what, what a weapon. What a creative weapon. I think it's like an invention of Cormac McCarthy's. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't think like you could actually do that, but I think it's a perfect, it leaves no trace. It has no, I don't know, there's there's a romance about like bullets and and like his weapons, even when he uses an actual shotgun, like the way it sounds, the way, and the way this thing sounds, it's like, this is a different kind of weapon, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And it has, like, there's, it's more chilling somehow. Yeah. Just because it leaves no trace. It just, like, pops a hole in their head and then comes back. And what's crazy is I think that the this this scene is the only person he actually kills with that. Is that right? I think so. It's crazy, right? That's crazy. <laughs> I would have thought, yeah, he killed. Yeah, it's true. He just blows, he uses it more to blow doorknobs. Yeah. He blows doorknobs. He threatens the guy at the Texaco. Right. 
Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It's so funny because it is the like uh, one of those things that's just imprinted on your totally. brain yeah. when you watch it. Yeah. Um, um, the calmness with which he yeah. kills is ch- chilling. It's a very good portrayal of like a chilling killer like that, like a cold. He He's just asking the guy, just put, just, can you just put your hands down? Like, you know. Yeah. And and then he just kills him. And part of the feeling is that I get when I see Chigurh is, man, he's not even like giving you, you know, these people, he's not giving them explanations. They just die for nothing. Like they don't know. They don't know why. <laughs> I mean, occasionally they'll get uh, well, a philosophical gives, disquisition. Yeah. But like, yeah. 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 No, I agree. I also think these early scenes just give a sense of how overmatched this part of Texas is. And, you know, in that sense, I think you're right. There's something specific about this, this part of the country because they just don't, uh, they don't get this. Like that guy, you know, a guy who's clearly not a deputy comes out of uh, the car and he just gets out and he's like, what's this about? It's like, like they don't, they can't, they haven't conceived of somebody like this. And, and, and that's the thing that I think Shigur makes like takes to his advantage so much. It's like, they're not prepared for this. They're prepared for a lot of other kinds of, attacks but not this right right the um the friendliness of the texans is seems puzzling to Shigur. he's almost like tickled by it he can't quite understand it and i think that if you haven't been around people from this part of the country you might think i don't know you correct me if i'm wrong you might think that the cohen's are are mocking them um, somehow or like belittling them in the same way that I sort of thought they might be mocking the Minnesotans and Fargo and like the, the way that they talked. But I don't think so. I think they're, they, these, they're, they're, give, they're all given a sort of innocence, like you say, like they can't imagine um, that somebody would have this kind of evil, uh, evil intentions. And you see it very clearly when he feigns that his car is is dead and the guy pulls over and says, hey, neighbor, how can I help yeah. you? You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so we, this is now the hunting scene. We see yeah. Llewellyn for the first time. Um, yeah. And I, you know, uh, what's his face? The actor. Um, Josh Brolin. Brolin. I, I love him. I think he's, he's just, great. And just great. Yeah. So we see him hunting. He's looking through a scope uh, shooting d- deer, I guess. You know, he's very careful. He picks up. He, he does a shot. He doesn't kill. Uh, so he has to go track it. He picks up his casing. This is what leads him to find the, the yeah. scene, the, mass, where the <laughs> massacre. Yeah. So there's just a bunch of pickup trucks and uh, dead bodies, except for one guy uh, yeah. who's alive and asks for water. This is all just shot so beautifully. You know, you have this scene of just just a tableau of uh, deal gone very wrong yeah. and just dead bodies, dead dogs, like yeah. or a limping dog. This is a limping black dog. Yeah. yeah. Like, what do we think happened here? There was clearly heroin and cash were supposed to be exchanged and then something went wrong and a bunch and a lot of people were killed. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. Like in my head, it's just sort of like a classic Breaking Bad kind of moment where you know yeah. somebody somebody got a little pissed off and then yeah. everybody started open firing and there was like lots of different kinds of weapons and 
uh, you know, he says, where's the last guy? Because he's, he's, he knows, he, he knows there's no money there. And he knows there had to have been money there. And somebody had to have come away from this, uh, uh alive. And, uh, the poor guy who has no water, he opens the door and the guy's clearly dying, like bleeding out. And all he wants is some water. He's <laughs> just like, Nope, sorry. And he doesn't even close the door for him when he's afraid right. of the, he's afraid of the, the wolves. We're already thinking of him as somebody that if this is going to be our protagonist, it's going to be a little harder to root for. <laughs> right. Right. You know? And it, it is interesting that once he comes on the scene, there is greed seems to kick in, mm-hmm. you know, like he, he doesn't strike me as the kind who would be that callous to somebody, but he knows that there must be money. Yeah. And it's like he gets singularly focused on finding it. Yeah. And then like he's very competently kind of puts himself in the position of this guy. He says like, okay, he would want to yeah. go somewhere worried that he was going to be shot, but he would go for shade. And yeah. then he find, and then he tracks him and yeah. he finds him um, and he finds a briefcase. The, yeah. the MacGuffin of the movie. The MacGuffin, yeah. just like a good old-fashioned Coen Brothers noir, there is a, <laughs> a case of money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's what, what, like $2 million? $2 million, yeah. And so he takes it, he's he's taken the guns too, like he takes this guy's pistol, yeah. grabs the case full of money, hides the guns under his trailer, and, and goes and sees uh, his wife. <laughs> and their communication, I think, could use some help here. It's oh. funny because I actually think in the movie it's pretty – you get the sense they're a good couple even though they're kind of sniping at each other a little bit. Yeah. In the book that makes it even more clear. Like they have a more extended conversation where he's like, you keep that up, I'll come back there and screw you. <laughs> yeah. She's like, can you stay up? To, or he says, I can stay up to do that. She's, she says, that's what she said. Like, uh, <laughs> and I think in the movie you get the sense that – he loves her yeah for sure i love when she says where'd you get the pistol he says at the getting place yeah <laughs> there is also you know that he, they capture the the, the uh, penchant for sayings <laughs> that you have in texas yeah. there's a saying for everything <laughs> yeah. i mean we just say penchant uh, <laughs> you say penchant yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's a bunch of good ones like that. Like if this ain't a mess, it'll do until a mess comes or something like yeah. that. Like later in the movie is a great example of that. Uh, yeah. By the yeah. way, the the woman who plays the wife is in um Boardwalk Empire. Um, uh, and also her? train spotting. Oh shit, really? Uh she's very good in this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a little whiny. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's a little maybe you, a little you know, whinier than she needs to be, I feel She like. seems like uh it seems like the dynamic is that that he he married a, a woman much younger than him. Like she she might have like just be a little less mature. It's dark now, right? The thing, the events that have unfolded have happened during the day when he was hunting. He goes home. Yeah. It's dark, and he decides to now go back out to take the guy water. Yeah, and it's like, wait, why? Like, what is going yeah. on here? Yeah, one of these opportunities for interpretation, right? Yeah. So what do you think? Do you have any? So we should say that you posted a video on Twitter a while ago in the context of our interpreting art episode. And this guy argued that Llewellyn 
was actually Shigur in yeah. a fight club uh, situation. And one of his big pieces of evidence is uh, some of the incongruities in the otherwise fairly tight story. Like, why is he going back later? I don't know if it's eight hours later, like he says it is in the video, yeah. but it's a good amount of time later. Well, it makes him the guy was clearly is... almost dead. You know? Right. Yeah. And if he's going to come, why just bring a jug of water and not like other ways of medically treated treating someone who was shot in the stomach. Right, right. So uh, it's, it is very puzzling. I don't buy that this means he's Shigur, uh, but uh, his motivations for the most part are fairly, they're understandable. He might be in over his head, but like you find $2 million, you're going to probably want to do something with that. Yeah. You're not going to want to just give it back. And, but this is a bizarre choice on his part that has uh, a bunch of different consequences, like kind of <clears throat> somewhat like good consequences for him, but also bad consequences, certainly bad immediate consequences for him. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, what, do you know, you, what do you think? I don't really have a good I, I don't either. It's a, it's yeah. a very hard to know what the motivation is um, because you can't, you can't believe that he actually thinks that he's going to offer comfort to anybody. It could, you know, because because one candidate is that he just felt guilty about what an asshole he was, so yeah. he's going back out there. Um, and, and maybe that's right. He does may, bring a gallon of water, like, yeah, right. And he does check on the guy. Yeah, I only thought of this now, but if you're building a case that he's actually Anton Chigurh, one piece of evidence uh, might be that Chigurh explicitly is described as. Quixotically going back to the scene of his own crimes, right? You know, and yeah, and so the fact that he's going back out there with like, how ballsy is that to go back to the scene of your own crime? Um, it's no more ballsy than going back to the scene of somebody else's crime. <laughs> I suppose <laughs> yeah. so. Yeah, um, but when he goes back, uh, he gets he gets found by I guess some other Mexicans looking for the money. Um, yeah. Uh, who, you know, they're looming over the hill in these four by these 80s four by four trucks with the big old, big old lights and yeah. a, a pretty scary chase scene ensues. It's in, in the dark and he's being chased and shot at um, and narrowly escapes by jumping into a, a little river um, yeah. and is followed by a dog um, yeah. in a really cool scene. I, I mean, aside I from the dog dying, it's like a pretty cool looking he's just floating down from the current of the river and the dog is just swimming like like a good good boy he's about to do what he's been asked to do it's and, so good the way they uh film this like you always get a sense of where everybody is yeah. and like him diving into the water and them shooting and then the the dog you know they set him free and he just is like a cannon out yeah. into the into the river chasing him and yeah i hate to see a pit bull die <laughs> yeah. but it is fucking well done and so the timing of when the dog is yeah. is attacking him he pulls out his pistol he empties it to clear it out to make sure it will fire properly He's trying to get the clip back in and and load one into the chamber as the dog is running, and he times it just basically the dog jumps at him and he and he shoots the dog. The dog yeah. still lands on him, but but he's killed the dog and then and then yeah. he runs away. Um, and the yeah. dog to I don't want to get too into this guy's thing, but the way the dog then is dead on the side of the riverbed is 
like is exactly the same position or close to exactly the same position as the dog they find uh, in the later scene, Sheriff and Garrett Dillahunt. Uh, they find Wendell, I guess his name yes. is in Mr. this. Walcott. Uh, Mr. Yeah, they they that that dog looks like almost like the same dog, huh. you know. Yeah. So right. if you want to play this, like that could be his his yeah. imagined like this is how that dog died instead of I just mowed right. them all down, right? You know. Um and uh, yeah, and, and for the record, I don't think either of us buys that theory, but it's an entertaining video. Like it's a good, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it illustrates what I like about this movie, which is somebody could, could play with the Taking a lot of different directions. Yeah. Um, okay. So here we get an incredible scene. Yeah. Uh, Chigurh just goes to a little Texaco gas station and he's getting a snack and he's filling up his car and the guy behind the counter who must be a character actor that he's been in, in a bunch of things just, as far as I'm concerned, steals the scene, even yeah. just with his with his reactions. Um, Chigurh essentially starts uh, questioning him about uh, how long he's there. It's chilling. He's a chilling guy. So the guy is getting this bad vibe, a bad feeling about Chigurh and what he's up to. The way that Chigurh interrogates people, somebody who was taking the words literally might have a, a hard time understanding people who who speak like that but he's doing it just to be cold i guess so he so, makes the most innocent like remark about are there is there rain up in dallas or something because yeah. he saw him coming from uh the north like Shigur just immediately takes offense to that and once he does he does that thing you know this is a good example will there be something else and he goes i don't know is there you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. He will repeat what the the person said before him. It's very like, and the and and they all look just confused. Like, yeah. what the fuck? Like, they don't know what this is. They don't get this. The way it's so funny, like friendo, like the way that he talks. Yeah, it's like you know, uh, Javier Bardem has a, a fairly heavy Spanish accent. So to hear hear some of the phrasing come out of his accent is kind of funny. Like, because uh, he's kind of mocking the guy. This is as much yeah. of an asshole. As yeah. he is when the when he asks about like how they got the place and then he says, well, it's my wife's father's place. And then he almost like cracks up. He's <laughs> like, so you so you married into it. And all this is from the book, too. Uh -huh. And then he's like, well, you know, I guess that's one way of putting it. And he's like, I don't have a way of putting it. That's the way it is. And yeah, it's so also masterfully shot. Yeah. Like you're getting tiny bit closer on their faces yeah. as all this is going on. They do that so well. The tightening, tightening yeah. of, of shot into face. Um, yeah, it's, and so, so here's where we get the scene where he, he makes him, he flips a coin and makes him call it. And he doesn't know that what he's doing for is playing for his life, but some part of him knows that this is a very Absolutely. bad game to be playing. Uh, and he has just this fear in his eyes. Um, you know, Sugar says, I can't call it for you. It wouldn't be fair. Yeah. Um, it's and, interesting. Like what, like what is, what are Shagur's rules? You know? Yeah, exactly. What is Shugur's rules and what's his philosophy? Yeah. That's the thing. Like, maybe we could talk about this now because yeah. he said about the coin, like, did you see the year? It's 1958. It's been traveling 22 years to get here. Yeah. That's how we know this movie is set in 1980. Yeah. Uh, and he says, and now it's here and I'm here and I've got my hand over it. And it's either like, and it's either heads or tails and you have to call it. Like, what is, what is this that's animating the Shugur character? 
as I've thought about it, like it's hard to find a consistent dancer given his actions throughout the movie. But it does seem as if he has some view that fate is a thing. It exists. And what's going to happen is going to happen. <clears throat> and a lot of times it's bad shit that happens. But he's sort of given himself up, <clears throat> excuse me, as the agent of fate. Like he is now almost like, well, there's no control over anything. So like I will be the instrument of, of fate in this world, which he gets pushed back from Carla Jean at the end for this very thing. What makes him toss the coin? It's almost like he has this deterministic view and he says like, we make choices to get where we are and those choices have led us to this place. But then he also tosses the coin, which could, as in this case, let them off the hook or could kill them. What, like, why do that in this fatalistic, I am the agent of fate kind of view? The the coin toss makes me feel like he is, so if, if the universe is random, um, then whether this guy lives or dies should be random. So he's going to let the universe decide by, right. by tossing the coin. Although weirdly, then the guy gets to choose what the what whether it's heads or tails <laughs> like what the <laughs> so and it, that's important to yeah. Shigure that he actually calls it it's almost like you have to play a role in what happens it's almost yeah. like Shigure is he is watching it unfold like he just wants to be an observer like let's see what's going to happen now i'll flip a coin yeah. you call it which what will the universe have decided between those those right. things yeah but that is inexorable. Like whatever the result of the coin is has to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very weird. This is a very weird thing about Shigur. He has this deterministic, sometimes almost moralistic kind of streak where he's like, you make choices and it leads you to this point, you know, like you know, when he says to Woody Harrelson, like if your rules. Right. He says, if your rules have led to this, what of what use are your rules? But is he talking yeah. about choices there? Like I, cause I, it could be consistent yeah. By saying, like, look, your rules are obviously useless. Like, they, right. they haven't really saved you. And with this guy, this Texaco guy, is he saying that you're just letting life happen to you? That's how you're yeah. here in this Texas place. You used to be somewhere else, and now you're here, and it's your mother's thing. Maybe that's what the thing that drove him in this case. Yeah, Right. I feel like, I feel like yeah. we've talked about this before. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. Like this idea of somebody trying to jog people out of letting life happen to them by doing something violent. Yeah, I definitely think there is something that, that he seems very bothered by, that this guy lives the life that he lives. Yeah, yeah. just politeness. I, I, I give this bullshit small talk. Mm -hmm. I live here. I go to bed at 930. I close it dark. It's like, you're not an agent. Yeah. And I am going to now make you the ultimate agent. Which is so weird because he treats destiny and fate as if nobody really, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird juxtaposition. Of it's like, he's giving, he's making this guy make a choice that his life depends on. Cause he's never and, done that. This is the most, never done yeah, that. yeah. Yeah. I like that. The most important decision you're ever going to make. Even yeah. though it's like, uh, completely random. Yeah. It is a choice and it, his life depends on making the right choice. Yeah, he's never yeah. made a choice with that much skin in the game. And of yeah. course, Shigur makes those choices all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, you know, it's funny, like we haven't gotten much of the sheriff 
who uh, we don't we so haven't even far, seen it. I don't think I don't think we've seen him. We haven't uh, seen him once yeah, we've since only heard, the mo- yeah. we've only heard the opening monologue, yeah. and we have no context for that. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so uh, Llewellyn basically tells Carla Jean that uh, after that whole chase scene, he goes back and he's like, "You got to go to Odessa." And I was like, "Why? Why are Ukraine? Is this Ukraine propaganda?" <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure they just like put it into the movie to get us to like support more military spending. Uh, Odessa, Texas. Uh, And we get Shigur out at the scene of the shootout. Um, And he's there observing it with a couple of other guys who we don't really know. You know, we just know like these guys are higher up in the drug deal. Yeah. Yeah. We have no clue what the... Uh, what's going on yeah, yeah. and uh so chigur pulls the vin number from Llewellyn's truck uh yeah. and then just kills the other two guys for yeah. no for no reason i guess i i was reading maybe that's maybe what's pissed chigur off is that the the main drug dealer guy who's um the guy in the office in the office yeah has hired multiple people to retrieve his yeah. drugs and and that pisses him off um yeah, and gave them the transponders. That's right, yeah. So now he has a transponder. Yeah. Now, we don't know anything about the transponder. <laughs> no, Or cool. <laughs> who these people are or why he's killed them, but you kind of get the sense that it's probably for tracking purposes, but it's showing nothing yeah, now. Right. And I guess, like, seems like you have to be pretty close to it. For, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's not like a GPS. You know, this is pre-GPS. Um, yeah. Get it's a weird device in that sense. Right? I know, it really is. <laughs> it's like you have to be within like two football fields from Super it. Super close. And, yeah. the, you know, it does play this interesting role sonically to build suspense, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like. Yeah. 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 I don't even know if that that technology is a real thing. And so here's where we get Tommy Lee Jones for the first time, the sheriff. And we see Mr. W for the first time. Jared Dillahunt, so good. To <laughs> so see good. Him. Yeah. I think the first time I saw this movie, I I didn't know. No, who that yeah, was. I have no idea. Of yeah. course, had no idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so they're just trying to figure out what went on. Um, interesting scene. There, you you get the sense that he's a very competent sheriff, right? By the way he's analyzing the scene, he knows immediately it's a 1977 Ford, and they find Llewellyn's car, and he recognizes Llewellyn's car immediately. I also, think Wendell also notes that these are two separate uh, events. Right. They are good, and yet throughout the whole movie, always one step behind always one what's step going behind. on. Like, they don't accomplish anything. Yeah, right. No, that's, that's right. I hadn't thought of it that way. All right, so we get uh, Shigur finds Llewellyn's trailer, right, which, as you just said, they would have been there, but they're not. Yeah. And yeah. he picks up some bills, which gives him some critical information and phone bill. Weirdly drinks milk. A very villainous thing to do, to pull out the yeah. milk from the fridge and just uh, start drinking And then it. the sheriff does the and same thing. And then the thing. sheriff does the same thing. Yeah. Um, we get a great scene with that receptionist that he asks where Llewellyn is. She won't give out any information. Uh, I love this scene. She's the one person that bests Shigur like she gets the better of Shigur in the whole movie like she does she just stares him down and will not tell 
uh, him where uh, Moss is, she wins. Like yeah. he, he, you can tell he's pissed, but then he hears a flushing of a toilet, and then right. he's like, "Ah, fuck it," right. and he gets out. Like nobody else does that to Shigure. That's true. I like that. From that, we learn a little bit. Like he's not just an indiscriminate killer. You know, he's not. It, it's hard to know what set what will set him off. And what won't you almost get the feel? I know that he left because he heard someone else there, but you almost yeah. get the feeling that he respected her. Yeah. Yeah. In a way that he didn't respect the Texaco. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's because she took a stand. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. And she's like, I'm sorry. I'm not telling you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like it. She also looks great, by the way, like her, her hairdo. <laughs> perfect this is why and i used to be one of the people who complained about the coen brothers being condescending towards their characters but i don't think you know like you see a character like that they're not being condescending i know that's what i was trying to say where where like i used to think the same like i thought i thought like in fargo they were being mock mocking yeah and i don't think so i think they want to find interesting human beings from all kinds of walks of life and they do, and they find these amazing character actors, and they give them these amazing characters to play, and they are all scene stealing, you know, in their own way. And mm-hmm. if I feel at this point, I feel like if I were laughing at these characters, I would be the asshole. You're telling on yourself, yeah. People who, right? Although I, I don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> Just like you don't say steel, man, but like you've been yeah. saying it all the time. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, Llewellyn puts his wife on a bus, I guess to Odessa or to, his, to her mother's. Um, Sheriff gets to the trailer. Like you said, they're always just one step behind Wendell. <laughs> when it hits him, when, when Tommy Lee points yeah. out that the bottle of milk is still sweating, uh, yeah. he's like, Oh, we just missed him. Like he has this it's aggravating. <laughs> so it's aggravating. He keeps saying, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> and he's uh, like, all right, we're going to put out an all points bulletin or whatever. And he's like, find somebody who just drank milk. Like, yeah, what like you, for who? Yeah. We have nothing. And, it, you know, the sheriff never sees Shigur. Um, yeah. He, yeah. So, so he really doesn't know what to call in. Um, yeah. So Llewellyn goes in the opposite direction. Why does he go to Del Rio? I don't know. All, all I could figure we is that see it that a, on the phone bill. Yeah. That's as far as I know, oh. the only connection. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I think it's because he wants to buy. Yeah, I have it in my notes. Um, he wants to buy a truck from his friend Roberto, who is in Del Rio. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's and we it. hear right, Roberto's right. voicemail. He's like, hey, you reach Roberto. <laughs> this is my Mexican <laughs> accent. <laughs> Yeah, so he checks into a hotel in in Del Rio, um, and he finds a vent. He's very clever, this Llewellyn. The Uh, procedural aspect of this movie is really fun. Yeah, really So there's one scene when uh, Shigur is driving to Del Rio where he shoots the, is it a pigeon? Yeah. Yeah. Some kind of blackbird. Some kind of blackbird. Um, And he misses. And I I, I don't know what it's trying to say, um, but obviously it's included for a reason. It's a callback, I think, to Raising Arizona where, you know, the, mm. the biker from hell is like sh- shoots at little animals for no reason. Um, and there are a couple like the scene at the Texaco station is very Raising Arizona, too. Like, so I think it's that. I think it's, I don't know, maybe Western bad guy trope to, to be cruel to animals. animals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do love so. that the bird gets away. 
Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, and maybe it shows that Shigure's heart really wasn't in, in it. You know, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy to randomly shoot a bird. It's very weird to know what he is. And in fact, this the the uh, difficulty that I have in figuring out what Shigure's motivations are and what kind of a killer he is are kind of what what feed into the thought like maybe he is just the Leviathan of of the sheriff's imagination. Um, yeah. yeah. Or some opaque new form of evil that we can't understand, which I think the movie is pretty effective at suggesting that, too. Like, he has principles, but what they are might not be something that, like, a normal person can understand. Yeah, you can't work it out. But, yeah. you know, the the Woody Harrelson character, which we meet now. Um, uh, who, and I love Woody Harrelson. <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, Woody Harrelson is hired by the whatever drug who's the american the side desk, of this drug deal of the drug deal yeah is hired this um, guy thinks shigure is a loose cannon and so he sends like the next best the next man. best thing yeah. yeah um which who is very un shigure like even though he's yeah. obviously a skilled killer he's like the opposite <laughs> um like yeah he's very personable He's like empathetic. You get the sense. And weirdly, he admits that he is not principled in the same way that Shigur is. Yeah. You know, he doesn't really follow the rules. Like he is doing it for the money. Yeah. I'm like, killing people for money and I'm good yeah. at that. All right. So here we get Shigur basically in a, in a shootout with Llewellyn. Not with Llewellyn. Oh, no, no. Sorry. The Rude. Mexicans are just already there when Shigur gets there. Yeah. And he kills the Mexicans. He he kills the Mexicans. He finds, the, yeah, the, the, he, Llewellyn gets spooked. And so he gets the room on the other side. Um, and that's when Shigur finds it and kills the Mexicans. In a very Scarface scene, uh, knocks off three, the three Mexicans who, yeah. who were there uh, waiting. Um, including one behind the shower curtain in a very cool scene. You see like the blood splatter on the shower yeah. curtain from behind. He closes the curtain, which is funny because why does, it's almost like he wants to spare himself the sight of another like dead body. <laughs> Maybe, uh, yeah. Uh, but he's also a little bit uh, obsessive about not getting blood on him. Yeah. Right. That's true. Uh, yeah. He, that's why he keeps removing. His he boots, takes off so. his socks. and exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. Llewellyn gets away here. Yeah, Llewellyn gets away, um, hitchhikes away, yeah. and um, and goes to another hotel, the Eagle Pass Hotel. And yeah. here's where he figures out as he's sitting on his bed in the dark, like, wait a second, like, how could they have found me that easily? And yeah. he, he digs through the briefcase and finds that there's a tracer there. Um, yeah. But can't get away uh, in time because Shigur has already found him. And we get a really nice tense scene where uh, Shigur is clearly coming up to the room to look for him and he's there in the dark cocking his gun shigur blows the lock off with his little compressed air cattle gun into him into yeah. him it knocks right into him and he fires probably why he he didn't hit him uh, dead on this is a great scene this is such a good shootout just scene just well, uh like him then diving out the window with the money coming back into the hotel and then going out onto the street like all of that is just so fucking good and you get like there's just like, cool stuff of he sees where shigure is with the reflection on the yeah. store window like yeah. it's awesome and he injures Shigur here. But one thing in this scene that I want to ask you, as he's driving and trying to get away from Shigur, this is what really makes Shigur seem like he has superpowers. Yeah. Shigur is literally, 
shooting like sniper level shots into the car as it's as it's riding away, which just doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like he had a weapon that could even do that. Like he's carrying around a, a shotgun with a silencer on it um, that's blasting pellets. Like, but he's just knocking all these bullets, kills the driver of the car instantly. It's instantly. a very like he gets into the car. He's like, I ain't gonna hurt you. I need you to drive me on out of here. And the guy's looking at him like, what the fuck is going on? And then all of a sudden, his just head is yeah. like <laughs> gets blown off by this bullet. And then it's like that. Choo, 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 yeah, kind exactly. of like, right. and you're right. It has this feeling. This is what I mean when I it it, it seems soulless and precise. It's like got like this power. There's something cold about it, like the sound of it, the way, like the precision of it, and. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I guess it was a shotgun before. Presumably, he could also have a rifle, though. And yeah, uh, we never, we we don't, we all we see him is with a with that big old silenced shotgun. Um, it it does make me think that there is something to the like. Actually, the 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 all of the violence that is being committed is being committed by multiple people, like drug dealers, and and he's he's personifying the evil with Shigur. So maybe there were other. It it really felt to me like there's somebody else shooting. Um, but it's supposed to be Shigur, so maybe, maybe he's just yeah. a badass. Like, yeah. And Shigur is also really hurt at this point, yeah, right. as we'll see. So, yeah. um, like, the fact that he can still get off these perfect shots, um, yeah. he doesn't end up getting him, but, yeah, that's right. I've, that's totally fair. If you wanted to run that idea that he's a kind of, like, umbrella yeah, right. Like character for yeah. all these other characters. And he is almost Mexican. He's a Spaniard. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, although I don't get the sense that the evil is only the Mexicans. No, no, like, no, no, no. It, it's, yeah. it's yeah, it's, it's the world. Yeah, it's it's the world right now. Yeah. Uh, like it's the kids with green hair and bones through their <laughs> bones nose. through their, which is like, wait, who does that? <laughs> they, uh, like uh, <laughs> on the Flintstones. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, Shigur is hurt, and we see him creating a diversion to go in and get some some pain meds. Oh, I love this scene. Uh, too. He like yeah, he's just so just uh, like overdoes it, but so calculating. He wants to steal painkillers to help himself. He's going to basically clean the big old wound that he has, and uh, but. But in order to do it, he basically makes a Molotov cocktail out of a car, blows it up, and with the diversion goes and steals the lidocaine. And I couldn't tell if the other one, like if he was shooting himself up with like morphine after, after the yeah. lidocaine. Yeah. yeah. Um, and We've both had that fantasy, right? <laughs> <laughs> Blowing up a car, walking into a pharmacy, taking whatever the fuck we want. <laughs> I mean, yeah, by any means necessary. Yeah, no, but I love the way that's shot because you get a shot from inside the pharmacy at him yeah. and it's just a normal pharmacy. And then all of a sudden behind him, the car explodes. Every, he does not hesitate. He does not break stride. Like everybody starts running out. What the fuck's going on? And he just goes right into the. Uh, it's almost styled like the badasses in an action movie who don't yeah. turn around for explosions, except for right. he's a weird looking guy who's limping over to get some lidocaine. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. And his little limp, what a good performance here. Yeah. We also get the sort of psychopath scenes where he is cleaning himself and (laughs) almost operating on himself with very little emotional, like display. You, 
but it's also very body horror-ish like it's really like graphic yeah he's picking out pieces like a shot in in, from his leg yeah when he dumps the like alcohol onto (laughs) his he's uh, irrigating his wound and you just see like oh there's a there's a few things like that in the movie it has a kind of like david lynch body horror element yeah yeah (laughs) i love yeah this whole sequence is just phenomenal there's so many great like long scenes like set pieces but to go right from the eagle hotel shootout into this is (laughs) uh it's pretty awesome it's awesome in in the meantime llewellyn has actually gotten himself to the mexican border because he's shot through the the gut looks like um and he (laughs) it's just like a shows what how how different things were in 1980 he just basically like gets himself to mexico by walking um across the border right well this if you want to make the this is like prejudiced or anti-mexican <laughs> like the border guard for mexico is like napping as he walks through <laughs> yeah and then like kind of wakes up as he crosses and he's like, just ah, doesn't give a fuck. like yeah yeah and to be fair it was the middle of the night yeah. uh, <laughs> uh we also get the scene where he basically pays he pays three like you know <laughs> right it goes right into dudes. the mariachi yeah like sleeping napping mexican border <laughs> guard and then like to him waking up to a mariachi band sitting to him uh, singing to him on the corner of the, so uh, so absurd like very absurd <laughs> like waking yeah. up it's clearly very early in the morning and, and uh, yeah. mariachi band is just playing for him <laughs> yeah it's uh, not clear so, like, yeah. yeah it it's hard to take some of these things literally in that yeah, sense right. like why would they just like it's like seven in the morning why <laughs> are they even there uh like it's not like a good time for right. making money as a mariachi band and they're just leaning over him on the sidewalk like right. you know. yeah uh but i, they I wonder what the get... song the words for that are did you look that no, up? i didn't know i didn't i wasn't paying enough attention um, i bet there there's some significance <laughs> to what they're singing uh now um uh we get woody uh, Harrelson's character. I forget the name of him. Do you know the name? Carson like, Wells. Oh, Carson Wells. That's right. <clears throat> in the hospital, he's tracked Llewellyn to the hospital and he's basically tells him about Shagur and why he should be worried. And Llewellyn just can't get past the name. He calls him Sugar. <laughs> um, but also like, he, this is an interesting scene in terms of Moss to this point. Yeah, he's like, he's he's almost gotten himself killed multiple times, but like, he seems like he's kind of maybe equal to this task given that yeah. he's still alive right now and Carson Wells is like no, no. you don't know what you're dealing with here like <clears throat> what do you like do you think he might be on his way to Odessa and he's like why Odessa he's like oh man you're this you're in over your head here yeah. you know right. you're not cut out for this you don't know what you're facing here uh, and this is where he also says he's not like you he's not even like me but I think there is this kind of waffling about Moss whether he's really competent uh and you know like some of the tracking stuff that he does and certainly he gets himself out of a lot of scrapes but you also get the sense that okay this is something like the sheriff he's never seen before right even he has no idea he has no no conception of it you you know greed is a bit of a theme here like in some of the other uh coen brothers um yeah noir movies where he just at some point 
he can't let go of the idea of having those. Those $2 million are his now. Like he, there's nothing that's yeah. going to stop him and not even the threat from Woody or the, the information that this guy's a monster. Um, and that he might kill uh, Carla Jean. he might Jean. kill Carla Jean. Um, and you get a couple of, like, of, of these, uh, you know, the three kids that he runs into that he pays for his, for a shirt. Um, yeah. Uh, they, one of them starts asking for more money for the beer. Yeah. You see the, the kids at the end sort of fighting over the, uh, who's going to get the, should they split the money? There is, there is that a little bit of a theme of, of greed being the downfall What's of humans behind all of this. Like, and there's yeah. just different levels of it. Cause the kids at the end are mostly like not greedy, but then all of a sudden, it's just, once they have the, it's, it's exactly. like, it's like, no, once they're they have the hundred dollars, yeah. it's like, they didn't ask for it. Yeah, but once in fact, they, they were trying. Yeah, they were trying to not, and yeah. then it, once they had it, you're right. Like it's it same with Blue Ellen. Like yeah. once he had the money, it's like okay, now I can't give it up. So it's like that's that's the original sin is when you. Oh, we forgot to say that he threw the uh, yeah. money over um, on the riverbank, right on the border. But Woody Harrelson smart enough to figure out like okay, like he probably would have leaned on a pole. Uh, if he was going to yeah. throw it like, so I think he kind of found it. I don't know if we don't know if he accepted the deal that Carson Wells is offering him because Carson Wells is saying like, the only way I'm going to protect you and your wife is if you give me the money and uh, it cuts there, you know, mm, yeah. to, before we know, but he is looking for it on the river. Maybe he yeah. just deduced that. Uh, I think I could go either way. Oh, that's right. That no, that makes a lot more sense that he, that he might have told him because he's desperate. Because because it seems again almost impossible that he would know where to look. Like that's that's like a very specific place that all of a sudden he's looking. Except that like he knows that he almost got killed in the right across the yeah. river, and yeah. now he's here. So it also could be that he figured it out on his own. Yeah. So Woody's told him, look, this guy can find you. And it, that's exactly what happens to Woody. Like Shagor finds him. They have a, a little philosophical discussion. Um, one of my favorite lines here is when Shagor has found him and he's sitting right across from him. Woody has to know that this yeah. is his last conversation and he's trying to haggle. And Shagor says, you should admit your situation. There would be more dignity in it. <laughs> and I think Woody Harrelson agrees, but yeah. then also wants to live. And I yeah. think that's the difference. Like Shigur will not will be very happy to risk his life for the print, whatever principle of dignity he's upholding yeah. here. Whereas Woody Harrelson is like, no, you're right. It would be more honorable, but uh, <laughs> I, I have to take like the one in a 10,000 chance. Yeah. Like it's a little pathetic that he offers him like $14,000 from know, an ATM. Like that from an ATM. It really is sad. But uh, I think he knows it's, there's virtually no chance, but virtually no chance is better than no chance. And we get kind of, again, even though this is like a full on, like this is your last conversation, he just gets shot. Like not, it's not an expect, like the phone starts ringing and boom, like that's it. Um, and who's the, it turns out to be Llewellyn on the phone. Here is where he says, like, you're going to bring me the money. Like, he doesn't even want to look for the money that would be beneath him. Yeah. No, he's got to bring it to me because of the inconvenience that he's caused. He says to him, like, if you do that, I will spare Carla Jean. Otherwise, she's accountable. Same as you. 
He says, like, I don't know if you care about that, but that's the best deal you're going to get. I won't tell you you can save yourself because you can't. So he gives uh, Moss now the chance. And and I think he's being sincere here. Yeah. I think he's 100% would not kill Carly Jean if he did it, but Moss doesn't. So this is a big choice. This yeah. is one of those life or death choices for Moss, but it's not life or death for him. It's life or death for Carly Jean. Yeah, and I can't blame Llewellyn for not believing him. Like, why would you believe the? Why would you take the word of like somebody who's just like some fucking killer yeah. criminal, right? Like, but he should have listened to what Woody was saying. Like, he yeah. has principles, and if he had listened to that, in between, we know we've seen the sh- the sheriff has asked Carla Jean to say to to tell him where Llewellyn is. He says like, look, I can. I'm your only chance here. Like I can help you. Just tell me where Llewellyn is. And here's where he tells her a story about the guy who's killing a steer um, and wrestling with it. And this sort of like crazy story about, about trying to shoot, you know, the, the steer turns out not to be dead and he starts going crazy bucking around and all he can do is shoot, try to shoot him in the head. The bullet ricochets and hits him. And then at the very end, he says that wouldn't happen nowadays. Nowadays they have all kinds of, modern ways of killing and he describes the exact gun and that's what makes me think again that he's created Mm -hmm. shigur in his head and in his head he has given him this modern way of killing Mm -hmm. um more efficient way of killing it's not like the romantic i'm wrestling the steer like man versus beast this is a much colder way it's a cold yeah Yeah. cold i think that's totally right And then it's funny because, like, they will undercut anything. Like, later when Carly Jean calls uh, the sheriff and he says, that story you said about Charlie whatever, and he's like, (laughs) Like who? who? (laughs) And so, so, like, it's it's kind of implied that maybe he made that up, you know? Right. No, totally. Yeah. Like, Uh, he was trying to make a point and he just created a parable in his head. (laughs) Right. Uh, But I I think that's totally true. That's a really good point that it's this new modern way of killing. Uh, We got an uh, interesting scene where the sheriff is talking to Wendell and he tells the story about the old people who who were tortured to get their to get their checks. Um, Their social security. Their social security checks. And they're just like tortured and killed and buried out back. And people didn't even notice. No, he goes, yeah. So he says, uh, the only reason they noticed is because an old man run from the premises wearing only a dog collar. Yeah. And (laughs) Wendell gives a nervous laugh. So that's all right. I laugh myself sometimes. Ain't a whole lot else you can do. Here's an interesting thing in the book. So this comes from one of those italicized, like... Uh, monologues, you mm-hmm. know, separate from the narration of the action of the book. And, but it's word for word, like the same description, except that it's just you hearing it from the sheriff. So he says, What it took was the guy with the dog collar. And then says, That's all right. I laughed myself when I read it. <laughs> so he's saying that to the reader. Right. Like, and, and you do kind of laugh when you, yeah. uh, when you read it, you know, like that, uh, it's, uh, but this time instead of it being Wendell, it's us, and it, yeah. it's very effective. I love Tommy Lee Jones's delivery of it too, yeah. because he's not laughing at all, but he's forgiving yeah. us for laughing. But he's just horrified. So we get we get Llewellyn crossing the border again, getting back into the U.S., going to buy some clothes because he's basically just in his hospital clothes. These are weird scenes with him and the boot guy. I know. I kind of like them, and I don't know why. Yeah. 
<laughs> they seem significant. Like, so he he calls Carla Jean, says, "Meet me in El Paso. I'm going to give you the money, send you away, and then I'm going to deal with this guy." And um, the there are these weird series of scenes with the mother that I got the cancer, right? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Ah, you don't want to know how many people I know in El Paso? This many people. It's funny because all this is setting up for, you know, going to El Paso and the Mexicans are on their trail too and Shigur and it's all converging on this, what's it called, the desert in El Paso or something. And then we don't, we just see the tail end of it. Like, and this is also in the book, like you just, he's already dead. It's great. There, I love it. Like it's jarring, it's anticlimactic, it's disappointing. You know, there is part of you if you watch the movie in a certain way, Llewellyn is your protagonist. Yeah, and and it's disheartening the uh, the the way that they kill him off screen, completely off screen. There is, you know, it's that a- woman that's hitting on him. Uh, she says something like, when she's like, "What are you looking at?" He's like, "I'm looking to see what's coming," and she says, "No one sees that." Yeah. Um, and and then. Then he's just dead in the hotel room, like right in the door. And we get the sheriffs on the scene. Just got there just a just little too there. late. Like he literally sees people mm-hmm. shooting yeah. out of the hotel. But this is Moss is already dead by then as he pulls up. Yeah. Like it's this big shootout and we don't see any of it. We don't see any of it. We, yeah. we get a little uh, shot of Moss dead. And then that's yep. the last we see of Moss. That's it. We just <laughs> no, there was no farewell uh, to to Moss. It's, it's like a the new last... kind of movie killing, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so it happens confused. behind like closed doors, off yeah. screen. <laughs> um, I-, I wanted to ask you in the scene. There's a scene before this where Shigur goes and confronts the uh, the big boss man behind the office and yeah. kills him, basically mad that he gave the Mexicans also the transceiver. Um, and then he, he talks to the accountant and says, you didn't, did you see me? Like, he's yeah, like, are you going to kill me? He's like, did you see me? And then it cuts. Like, yeah. did he, are we to believe that he just spared the life? I, I assume. Very strange. I, I took this as another, like, have some fun with this one. Viewers. Like, yeah. am I a ghost? Cause also in pro- close proximity to this scene, the sheriff says, like, is he real to the El Paso guy? Like, or is he a ghost? Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Uh, so good. There's a lot of ghost-like features of Shigur. Yeah. Like, if I had to guess emotionally, like, I feel like emotionally Shigur is not in the mood to kill him. Yeah. Um, this is, so, as you said, there's a scene with the sheriff, uh, the local sheriff that Tommy Lee Jones is talking to, where this is where they talk about, like, where he says, like, oh, man, green hair, bones in their noses, like, what's with this? <laughs> what's with this new generation? And uh, and this is also where he says, can you believe it? He just strolls right back into a crime scene. Um, how do you defend against that? It's like you kind of assume your villains are rational. And <laughs> yeah. And if you can't and if, if you can't, like, what the hell? How are you supposed to do your job? Yeah. Um, now, this is a big scene that I want to ask you about. Yeah. When the sheriff, this makes the sheriff go back to the crime scene. Mm-hmm. When he goes in there, we get a shot of Shigur in the shadows. Yeah. Like in like a closet or something. Yeah. And then he opens the door with his gun pulled and nothing. Yeah. He sits down on the bed. So sees the vent. was Shigur in the room? I, yeah. Uh, I feel like this is once again a little sort of like 
he went into that room looking for the evil, that the big, the big bad, the evil, the evil was in that room, but, but maybe he wasn't really, like, maybe he wasn't really there. Yeah. I, it, it doesn't make sense. Like a few things don't make sense that he went there at all. doesn't make sense because there's nothing for him to really learn from the crime scene. Um, and that Shigur wouldn't just shoot him if he was really in the room, but he would suffer the indignity of like crawling through a vent. I think like this is a dream maybe triggered by the conversation about him going back. I think it's also like him just reckoning with the fact that he doesn't want him. He doesn't want to confront this guy. So like when he, even though he is there, he's very relieved to see the vent open and the him. So maybe it's a little bit of a, okay, I got to retire because yeah. even when he was joking about hiding, you remember he hides behind, he's like, I'm hiding behind you yeah. to the deputy. Yeah. He really is, I think, deeply yeah. distressed at the, at confronting the evil. And maybe he's imagining Shigur waiting in the shadows for him. Yeah. Um, it's just a powerful image in his mind. There's one thing in the book that is not part of the movie at all, which you get a backstory of him being in, uh, sorry, World War Two. Mm-hmm. And he got a bronze star for essentially like ditching his unit. And he has never like lived that down. And, and one of the whole reasons he wanted to do this job is to try to make up for it. And yeah. protecting Moss was going to be one way of trying, like maybe making up. Yeah, he's definitely trying to be a hero. Yeah. And he gives up on that too. That just, this is very much Cormac McCarthy. Like there, it's so spare and bleak, even though there's a lot of kind of beauty to it. But ultimately it's like you, the evil is too much and it's too soulless to really confront unless you're, yeah, I think he, his arc is admitting to himself that he he can't, he's not up for this. Yeah, he's overmatched. And in fact, he goes to to his uncle Ellis, and we get a great scene there, yeah. um, where he's basically telling him, like, he's like, "Why are you retiring?" And he's like, basically, like, I can't do this anymore. I'm overmatched. Yeah. And and he says, "I always thought when I was old, God would come into my life." And mm-hmm. he's sort of feeling sorry for himself. And I like Ellis is basically like, "Shut the fuck up!" Like this, this isn't a all about you kind of you know he's kind of tries to snap him back um tells him yeah. it's vanity to think th- these things yeah he says ain't nothing new this country's hard on people they ain't waiting on you that's vanity and uh but i do think it's interesting the thing about god like it's it's like he's also coming to realize that there's no god there's no god yeah and that connects to shigur to some degree like you know it's almost like shigur views himself as an agent of a godless universe. Yeah. You know, the, the deterministic fate somehow um, and with a bit of chance with too, bit of just chance, blind yeah. chance. Yeah. And you know, and I can't help but think that this is a, I used, I mean, used the words Leviathan or behemoth before, uh, this is his, his monster. His, his version of the Job story is, is not a, theodicy he's not questioning god he's now questioning just this cold universe um that could have created such a monster Um, yeah yeah and he just doesn't feel god's presence though and uh so he retires and he has a great wife you know we get (laughs) the sense um but it's a sense of failure 
Yeah. Yeah, which is not your this is not your typical protagonist, right? He's yeah. he's his arc isn't one of redemption in the end. Yeah. He doesn't end up saving the day by getting there just in time and proving that he was still up for the task. Uh, yep. He gets none of that. Even if he dies in the process, like, yeah. And same with Llewellyn Moss, same yep. with, like, this, like, this is revisionist in a way that, like, Unforgiven is not, right? Like, uh, he does at least kill uh, yeah. the Gene Hackman at yeah. the end of Unforgiven, even if he, like, loses his soul in the process. But in this, there's just no closure. That's one of the things I think that really makes it distinctive. Yeah, absolutely. We also, by the way, we get the we get the scene where Carla Jean has buried her mom, who died from the cancer, presumably, and Chigurh is waiting at, at the house for her when she gets back, and he's just sitting on the sofa, and he says that Llewellyn gave her up. Basically, he had a chance to save you, but he chose the money over you, and she doesn't want to believe it. She says, "No, not like that." Um, but he makes her do the call the coin flip. And her response, I think, is just the response of sanity. She says, no, but it's not. Like, why are you making me do this? I'm not going to call it. Like, it's not. It's you who's making the choice to kill me. It's not the coin. She's fighting against. And it's like one way of dealing with fate. It's to, to insist that no matter what, you know, uh, there is still some degree of control over our fates in this universe. And... She's not going to play the game. She's calling him out on his shit. It's yeah. like, no, don't make it seem like the, the, the coin is yeah. to blame here. You're making this choice. You're doing it. And it throws him off briefly that she does that. Yeah. You know, in the book, she does end up calling. They have the same conversation, but she does end up calling it. And it's not. It turns out to be she was wrong. But I like the way they do it in the movie because she won't do it. She's taking a stand, and this is something that separates her from some of his other victims. She, Even though she says some of the same things, like, you don't have to do this, she also is principled enough not to call the coin. Yeah. Um, although I guess it does... <laughs> she had a 50% chance No, of I know. I mean, it's, it's weird. <laughs> it's pride. It's pride, and it's almost yeah. like... And maybe it's because... Her, she just buried her mom and she just found out that maybe her husband sold her out. <laughs> maybe she's she's a little bit like, uh, fuck it. Like, but I also like think she wants him to take responsibility. She's not going to let him yeah. s like spin the narrative that it was the coin and not him that's doing it. And she's willing to like sacrifice yeah. whatever chance she had to live. Yeah, uh, she says, to, I ain't going to call it. The coin didn't have no say. The coin don't have no say. It's just you. And he says, I got here the same way the coin did. So yeah. basically, he's trying to absolve himself of, of the choice, too. Like, he, he views himself as maybe a mechanistic force. Um, yeah. 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 Of, a, of a cold, bleak, of a cold, bleak different universe. universe. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then we get the car accident, which I think, you know, the, yeah. so... Another Chigurh, bit of randomness. Yeah, Chigurh escapes and gets... Somebody runs a red light and, or he's not, you know, and he's not paying attention because he's looking at the kids and it driving, uh, riding their bikes behind him. And he gets T-boned by, by a, uh, uh, station wagon. And he's not even mad. Like he never gets mad. Like, I feel like he's, yeah. he's just like, this is just uh, the, in a very pragmatic way. I have to deal with the fact that my bone is sticking out of my arm. Um, yeah. the kids of course are horrified by this. Yeah. They're like, mister, your bone is sticking out of your arm. Um, but he's just like, eh, 
give you some money, give me your shirt, I'll tie it up and I'll walk away. And that's this is the admirable part of Shigure. Like <laughs> he just rolls with whatever is happening. Yeah, you know? he really does. Um, yeah. uh, and he tells the kids, "You didn't see me." Um, yeah. Again, I was already this idea yeah. of like, is he real or is he not? Because that's the last we see of Shigure. We don't know what happened to him. I like that. There's a he's, he's walking. Yeah, he walks away, and that's the last we see. And it and there's like a nice little crossfade cut to to the sheriff at the table where where he ends the final scene by telling his his wife about two dreams that he had um which which yeah i mean i don't know do you have any thoughts about the dreams his dad yeah he dreams about his dad carrying fire um yeah weirdly it's I don't have that many thoughts about it. I, I was going to say the same. Yeah, yeah. It's in some way, like me, like everything about this movie is anti-climax. Yeah. The dreams are as well. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We don't know like, enough about his relationship with his dad for like that to be meaningful. Yeah. It's unclear what it's trying to say. He even admits like, uh, dreams are only interesting to the people who had them. I feel like it's just wistfulness that maybe if I could, if I could be, because he, he even says in the dream we're in the olden times. Like if yeah. I could be back then, you know, maybe things would be different. Um, and maybe the the torch that his father is carrying him will be some sort of wisdom. And he goes on ahead and he says, you know, like he was going to go then and get the fire from him. Um, but it's the least interesting. I know that it's almost like cries out to be interpreted, but it is, I think, the least interesting thing to interpret. <laughs> and... The movie just ends there. And for the, the first time ends. you see this, like the first time you see the the, the end of the shootout, I was like, what? has this yeah. theater, like, do they have the whole movie? Yeah. Uh, and then when this ends, <laughs> they forget like, to what to the, the next fuck? Reel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, I remember really liking this movie the first time I saw it, but like I, I didn't know what to make of I know. The, the, those. The way this just wraps up is so, it, it had been kind of a, procedural cat and mouse uh, with some philosophical overtones up till about three quarters of the way in. And then it's just, uh, you know, they threw out the rule book. Yeah. And, you know, this is where not having music is especially jarring because usually you have some musical cue that this is wrapping up. Yeah. And we don't have that at all. Um, I like that. So here's what I like about ending with the dreams. It, it is, it gives a certain vibe to mm-hmm. the whole thing. Like this, it's a end cap of like, uh, I don't know, just uh, not myst- mystical isn't the right word, but, but very dreaminess. Dre- dreaminess. Yeah. Um, I like that it ends on that uh, and describing a dream is it's always a little bit weird. And, you know, you obviously can't get into the world of whatever the person was seeing and he's trying, he's trying to give us that. And, and, it adds like a touch of not not surrealism, but something like that to to leave you with, oh. and also gives you the sense maybe this is more about him yeah. than you thought. You know, maybe totally. this is the first time I saw about... it. I didn't. The sheriff wasn't the protagonist for me. 
rightly so. Like he does like we get a lot from Moss's point of view with just intermittent things of the sheriff, who is a epiphenomenon in this yeah. movie. Like he gets nothing he accomplishes nothing. Yeah, that's a good way uh, to put it. <laughs> the sheriff epiphenomenal sheriff. <laughs> he's <laughs> like true. I think that's also why he quits. Like right. so it's he like parallelism. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter if I'm here or not, you know. Uh, he is like the Bruce Willis in the sixth sense, you know, <laughs> like he's, <laughs> it, it, it kind of closes with a, a real questioning, I guess, of what's real and what's not, even though I've never been attracted to any kind of, even an interpretation like Shigur isn't real. Uh, I, I think it's undeniable that there are so many openings for that to be considered as a possibility. And this is why I like, you know, bringing up the sixth sense is a good, it's, it's a good comparison because in the sixth sense, you, the mystery is that there are rules. Like when you go back and look at the movie, you can tell that nobody but the kid sees Bruce Willis. Sorry, spoilers. Yeah. Um, and that matters. Here, Chigur clearly has to have play a causal role in the scenes as we see them. So in some sense, he's, he's real and true. That they're creating a movie where he might be more symbolic than anything that, uh, uh, yeah. They don't have to answer the question, really, whether yeah. he's real or not. It suffices that he is both this huge symbol of whatever it is that the sheriff is feeling about modern evil, uh, rightly or wrongly, and also a pretty cool character in in a movie where there's some action scenes. <laughs> yeah. It's perfectly pitched. It's not full on surreal no. at all. No. In fact, it, 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 it gets You could get high and it might feel that way. Like, I think there's a chance that if you watch the movie that way, you, yeah. you might get into that vibe. But, like, but I, as someone who has watched the movie that <laughs> way, like, I think there are certain scenes, like, on, like the, at the end of the shootout with his reflection, in the, yeah. and, and there are certain lines that give this kind of surreal. But I think the way it's shot, the only shaky cam is when, he, uh, at the end, when he goes to see the, the hotel, the, the aftermath of the hotel mm -hmm. in uh, El Paso. Yeah. That's the only, everything else is shot so kind of traditionally. Straightforward, uh, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, and you could, the camera movement when they're, when they're moving in on the face, like when, in his yeah. conversation with Ellis, it's so slow. It's like, yeah. You know, to the point of imperceptible um, until you realize, oh, his face is much more in the frame than, <laughs> than it was. Yeah, they do that in a bunch of scenes. Yeah. Really effective. And, you know, and, and the Cohen brothers can do surreal like Barton Fink. At a certain point in that movie, you get the sense you're breaking from reality, but it's shot that way, you know, yeah. in a way that I don't think this movie ever is. I do think they felt their goal was to put onto screen. Yeah the tone and spirit of the novel. And that's like the huge success of it. I think they did that. They don't want to leave any more questions than the novel leaves or any fewer, I think. No, I think that's right. It's shown a talent of of translating that in, onto the screen. It makes me want to see them do that more. Um, yeah, I think they only did it one other time in True Grit, which is also a right. really faithful adaptation of right. the novel. Um, and that one, I read the novel first and mm. was just, like, shocked at how, uh, you know, given that there's another movie of True Grit that doesn't do that. Like, <laughs> right. It's, uh, I think they can do that when they want to. It's funny that they've, in all their filmography, I think it's pretty much just those two. Huh. 
I'll just say the the last thing I want to say is um, really is Tommy Lee Jones's performance here is like to me phenomenal and in a way that's so understated, but his face at the end, like I don't care what he's saying about the dreams as much as I care how he's expressing himself. Uh, It's just so good. And then I woke up. That's the last time. So good. I agree. He's great. Javier Bardem is awesome. Every you know, down the line, the Mexican in the suit. Yeah, you don't often see a Mexican in the suit. <laughs> They're like you know, aside from maybe Scorsese, if you just look at the quantity of just a movies that they've <laughs> done, it's like it's freaking unbelievable. Yeah, it's yeah, it's incredible. A world where the Coen brothers never made movies is a world that I don't want to live in. <laughs> yeah, that's the yeah. soulless. Like, <laughs> that's the. <laughs> All right. Well, we talked forever about this. And then I woke up. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard.